Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, woo, we got a big guest. We got a big, big guest here. We have John Doe. He played in a band called The Randoms. He played in a band called Black Randy and the Metro Squad, and he played in a little band that some people like called X. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. You can also find me on various forms of various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so by rating it on iTunes or writing a review or just telling everyone you know about it. And spreading the word, because uh, that seems to be what's happening. A lot of people have hit me up in the last couple of weeks and said that they've just found out about this podcast and are checking it out. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate people telling people about it and people checking this thing out because we have fun over here. And also, I very much appreciate the help and love and support of my brother, Tristan Abraham, who's the producer on this show. He also runs the Facebook page. You can find us over there at Turn It a Punk slash. Oh, no. Facebook.com slash turn it a punk. And uh, he puts stuff up on there and you can write to him. He gets messages to me. He might be the best way to get a message to me, to be honest with you. So find that over there on Facebook. And uh, uh, also, also, I have to say a huge, massive thank you to the fine folks at Vans. Vans Shoes has come on board. Vans, of course, you know, been around forever, been involved in, you know, this music forever. Ian McKay's wearing them. Yeah, that's right on that live live video. Ian McKay's got his old school Vans on. So uh, the good folks at Vans have come on board and uh, helped make this thing possible for me to do and get some equipment upgrades and things like that and also go to those great House of Vans things. And they don't tell me who I can and can't book on this show. They don't try and force guests upon me. They don't make you guys write surveys or any of that stuff. So Thank you so much, Vans, for uh, helping me out with this thing and everyone at Vans for, uh, you know, believing in this one, you know, believing in this podcast. Because if you believe in things, you never know what happens. Like you might wake up one day and you have John fucking Doe on your podcast. But once again, more on that in a second. Still over here in Japan, having a great time, trying not to buy too many records, seeing some unbelievable wrestling even seeing some incredible bands. I've been to Japan like four times before coming here this time. And I don't think I saw anything. And now I've seen a lot more. So I am really enjoying it here. No weed though. 
I've had no weed in a few weeks, so it's a kind of a little more high-strung Damien than usual. But that's okay. We're going to go home in a few days. But I am enjoying it while I'm here. Food's amazing. If you've never been to Japan and you have the means to get here, uh, do it. Because you will eat better than you've ate, ever, ate anywhere else in the world. Like, you can go to uh, like a like a 7-Eleven here and, and crush it for food. It's it's awesome. I'm having a great time. Anyway, I could go on about Japan forever, but that's what Footnotes is for. On this podcast, you want to hear just these interviews. So let's get to this one. Today on the show, we have John Doe from the band X and the Randoms and Black Randy the Metro Squad and the Flesh Eaters and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A legend. Someone I've gotten to actually interview, I think this is like my third time interviewing him maybe more i've gotten to play shows with them over the years and you know someone that is so cool like what uh like the the definition of someone who's like a cool cool dude like he's just you know i'm sitting there in the room with him and this guy's just like oozing it's like the fawns or something uh and john's also someone that is a musical genius you know he's played on countless records that i listen to seemingly weekly and I kind of reveled in the opportunity to get a chance to sort of sit there and punish him about the early years. Uh, so this is a short podcast, unfortunately, because he had to go play a show. And it was a great show. I got to see it. So um, I, you know, he had to go and get ready for it. But I did get a chance to kind of sit there and ask him about all these early singles and what it was like in the early years. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you listen to John and I blather on now so please sit back relax and enjoy john doe on turned out a punk john thank you so much for doing this you bet it's a a big thrill i've gotten to interview you a few times but never in this kind of setting which is my my ideal setting because i get to really nerd out (laughs) really go into like (laughs) minutia with you you'll you'll um You'll pardon me if I if I do less nerding. You can do all the nerding, and, <laughs> okay. I'll, and I'll just keep it straight. You do the teaching, I'll be the nerding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I want to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, Whatever you define it as, too, by the way. Yeah. I came across punk rock the first time I saw a John Waters movie. And um, I think the first time I felt stuck in the rafters watching Cream or something like that. Because um, I think punk rock is a ethos and it's a frame of mind, not a sound or tempo. Although it's become that. Um, and then it became more defined as you know, we were listening to um, probably Patti Smith or or the Stooges. Even though I did, I really only heard a, a, a little bit of the Stooges back in the early days. That came after I moved to California. When you, um, I think it's in the history of punk uh, or the history of rock and roll, the punk episode. Lenny Kay talks about how when Patti Smith came to or the Patti Smith group came to. Los Angeles for the first time you guys were in the crowd was that did you, did you see her on that first tour when they came through or was that 
I don't think so. Uh, it might have been. <laughs> memory. I, I might have been. I, I don't remember. I think it was at the Roxy's, but I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, I mean, I was a fan mm-hmm. at, the, at that time, so uh, I I have clearer memories of uh, the Damned and the Ramones and Blondie mm-hmm. um, television. They all played at the Whiskey. That was more our for the traveling bands are uh, and the Starwood. That was, those were our places. When you got to so sorry, I guess jumping back, where did you see the John Waters films the first time? Do you remember the theater or was that I don't know, in Baltimore somewhere. Yeah. Some probably maybe at um uh, maybe at the Maryland Institute of Art. Okay. Or or maybe just at some theater. Was it was there like a did he have like a cult following at that time in Baltimore? He's from there. Yeah, yeah no, that's what I mean. But like, was yeah, there? Sure, he was the only famous person in Baltimore, mm-hmm. except for maybe the, you know, the mayor who was an idiot, and <laughs> um, Marvin Mandel and Spiro Agnew, who was a criminal. Uh, but all politicians in Maryland are <laughs> suspect. So uh, yeah, it's everywhere. Uh, but but he was but he was available. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he he and and all of the uh, the people that he worked with, all the people that worked in his movies, lived and. Hung around in Fells Point, which was a kind of dilapidated uh, part of the Baltimore Harbor, and the Baltimore Harbor hadn't been redone to become um, Harbor Place, or as everyone calls it in Baltimore, Horrible Place. And um, and so it's just you know that they they were luminaries, but it was attainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk a little bit about that in, in that uh, Under the Big Black Sun book. Mm-hmm. What was the music scene like around them? Uh, that around, like, what was the music that people in that scene were kind of listening to or gravitating towards at that time? Like the Thugs or something like that? Or mm, no, it was more uh, glam, glitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, T Rex, David Bowie, and, and that kind of thing. Um, we were uh, this friend of mine and I were playing at Bertha's, which was a place that John hung out a little bit, and um, so did Mary Vivian Pierce and. Uh, We'd play just covers and kind of country rock stuff and things like that. So when you get out to Los Angeles, is is Rodney's English disco still happening, or is that scene kind of died off by that point? Uh, I th- I think it was happening, but I never went there. I I remember where it was, and I think that place is torn down now. But I, I don't I don't think I ever went there. That was uh, a little. Before my time, I got there at the end of '76, like uh, November of '76. So when you get there, is there stuff happening there? Like obviously in New York, everything's going on, but they're like Zolar X, I guess, would have been done. Um, they lived in X in the building that Xene lived in. Oh, really? Yeah. Were they still playing at that point? I don't think so. Okay, maybe. Did did um like so? What were the bands when you first got there that were kind of going on that you were kind of seeing? The Motels, the Pop. Um, the dogs, mm-hmm. and I think that's about it that I remember. And they were starting to do shows on their own. I mean, they were starting to to organize shows at the uh, uh, some like social halls. They they were they were doing some DIY stuff then. Mm-hmm. So that they were kind of the beginning of people um, getting frustrated not being able to play. Uh, the regular clubs because the whiskey had disco going on and, and the Starwood had cover bands. Um, <laughs> Quiet Riot was one of them. <laughs> uh, but we also saw like Cheap Trick at that, you know, oh, awesome. within the first 
probably 77 within the first year. So when when the, like the pop and all those bands, it's funny. Do you ever see the last two? Because those bands were putting up their own. I singles. think so. Yeah, I think I did see that. The last kind of snuck in to the whiskey when they started doing new wave as well as punk rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, new they did a lot more new wave than they did punk rock. Yeah, it seems like it was like a real division in clubs. Like certain music was <laughs> up in one place, and you know, not, Madame Wong's was another type. You know, like it was a very mm-hmm. divided kind of place at a certain point. But it wasn't like that in the beginning, I can imagine. Uh, not really. I mean, I would say the best example would have been Madame Wong's versus the Hong Kong Cafe in Chinatown. Because they were right next to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, right across the courtyard. Um, I'm trying to think of what the other new wave clubs were. Blackies down in Santa Monica was more kind of new wavy. But then it also skewed more towards roots music. Um, but the whiskey didn't really embrace punk rock until the mask was pulling in two or three hundred people and they were realizing that their place was empty <laughs> and they thought oh well maybe this isn't so bad after all they, you know because you know it's kind of a, a philosophical discussion because you know punk rock to them was messing up their their good Plan, which became classic rock. You know, it was it was kids that weren't didn't want to play the game, and and bands that didn't want to play the game um, the way that they wanted them to. So they were. It was more serious. It was more um, for real. And so they 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 were pretty resistant. And then you know the Sex Pistols fucking stuff up and pissing off journalists and. And, uh, you know, saying that we're here to end rock and roll and saying, we don't, you know, fuck you, we don't care about you. And then, you know, the media just said, okay, fine, fuck you too. And (laughs) we're not going to write about you and you're fucked. Mm -hmm. Go, you know, so that was our, you know, that was... That was what you had to come up against. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the Ramones and Blondie and and us and, uh, you know, even though we were a year or so later... um, we wanted to be the next version of what rock and roll music was. Um, I mean, even Dick Clark, when we finally got on American Bandstand, um, went to Xane and said, so what's the deal? Why, why won't radio stations play your, your music? It's great. And <laughs> Xane said, well, you're fucking Dick Clark. You tell me, you know. Uh, but it was just, you know, it was because it was too real. Yeah. And, and it wasn't um, ready for prime time. And, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe that's good in a way. Maybe that's all we were meant to do. When, like, going back to when you first get there, it's pretty soon after that you must have hooked up with the Danger House people, right? Because that random single comes out, what, what 78, right? So, or 76? Beats me. Uh, 77. Recorded. So. I think we, I think uh, X single was out in 78. That's when we came to New York for the first time. Um, yeah, I mean, they were just somebody who was doing something, and, mm-hmm. and nobody else. <clears throat> we didn't really get. Uh, you know, Greg Shaw was doing with Bomp was doing more um, kind of English uh, influenced. Um, who was on that? Twenty Twenty and the last and, Sunset uh, Bomber came out on that. Um, right. Uh, Dwight Twilley and and some people Plimsolls like, I think Plimsolls you know so it was a little more it, it wasn't as uh, 
as much what we wanted to do, and nobody else would uh, even entertain the idea of signing us. And and so, you know, eventually we got with Slash, and, and that was when people said, oh, you guys have sold out. And I said, <laughs> okay, fine, we've sold out. <laughs> it's funny, though, because, like, that that initial group of bands in L.A., like I was talking about, it seems so diverse, like the Screamers, you guys, the Weirdos, like... Alley cats, like everyone's doing something so different, but yet you all are kind of. Well, what was? What were you all kind of galvanized by? Like, what brought you together? Do you think? Um, that punk rock ethos that I was talking about at the beginning, mm-hmm. just doing stuff yourself and, and doing something that you felt was uh, from your, you know, uh, heart or intuition, rather than something you uh, were a virtuoso. At doing, even though Billy was a you know terrific player, he wasn't playing with his head. He was playing with his whole body. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, we were just all kind of misfits and all a little bit outcast. And so that's what kept us together because we didn't feel like um, we didn't feel like we could do it on our own, and probably couldn't have. I mean, that was a a big part of. Uh, the Under the Big Black Sun book is that I wrote it with the same feeling and intent that the scene had, which was like community and collaboration. Because I didn't want to tell the story just myself, um, because as much as I might embrace East LA and their influence on the scene, or women and, and their contribution to, to the whole punk rock thing, being equals and stuff, um, I can't write from that point of view. So that's why Exene is writing in it. That's why Dave Alvin is writing it, uh, wrote a chapter, because he knew what it was like for the for the roots musicians or roots bands to, to come into this punk rock world. <clears throat> and you know, everybody on, in that book has a a, a topic, mm-hmm. like a subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane's Jane Wheedlands was about uh, living at the Canterbury, because where people lived is what. Um, where all the ideas got exchanged. Those were our salons, you know, for even though we weren't like Hemingway and <laughs> stuff like that. Hemingway to me, John. <laughs> no, no. Hemingway to me. No. Um, um, so, so yeah, that's what kept us all together. But I, I would say that, that you could say the same thing about um, English punk rock. Um, the, you could say the same thing about the New York scene is that, uh, you know, television and the Ramones and Blondie and Talking Heads and, who am I forgetting, Suicide, um, all these bands that really created this uh, scene yeah. and sound, you wouldn't mistake talk, Talking Heads for, you know, <laughs> television. Yeah. And you wouldn't mistake, like, the Sex Pistols for uh, The Damned or The Clash or X-Ray Specs or Susie and the Banshees or... You know, so, and I would even say that it's the same with um, the early SST bands. Um, you know, Black Flag and the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets are all pretty, pretty different. Oh yeah. Um, you know, maybe as time has gone on, punk rock is a little more um, codified, but that's you know that's evolution, and that was one thing that uh, I was glad to also include in that book is is. Uh, you know, Jack Grisham had this. Um, his ta- his chapter was about the the rise of hardcore, mm-hmm. and so his unrepentant attitude was, 
you started this shit. We finished it. What's your problem? And, uh, I mean, there's plenty of problems in in that we got, you know, uh, uh, it was no longer, like, fun or safe for us to to go to shows because people thought that we were the establishment or some bullshit like that and wanted to pick fights with me and wanted to, you know, spit on Xene and shit like that, you know. And, And sure, I mean, it is evolution. And now I can see it from a from a more objective point of view. Even Jack talks about in, in uh, I forget which documentary, Rage, I think, about, you know, the kidnapping debutantes and shaving their heads. So it's obviously not necessarily a safe place for women, too, at that point. Like, right. I think, unlike that earlier scene where you have, you know, the bags and yeah. alley cats and X, everyone. Yeah. Um, I think that's the thing I loved about that Under the Black, Under the Big Black Sun, is that that book has the, 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 I don't know the, the ability it's perfect because it has different pe- different voices in it but then it also has everyone writing essays so it's actually like not just like a sound bite it's actually people like going into sort of like complex thoughts about the time and place and it really is reflective of like there you know especially in that Jack chapter there's a, there's like a, a defined end to that first sort of wave of stuff mm-hmm. when to you was there like a specific moment where you're like the party's over. Uh, no, not really. It was cumulative. Um, I mean, when when Darby killed himself, that was that was a sort of a result of the way things were going. He he felt alienated from the people that looked up to him mm-hmm. um, because, like you say, there was some uh, conservative ideas about you know, homosexuality and, and Darby was pretty confused about that. And, um, so no, not, not one specific time, uh, several times that we would try to go see fear or the middle class or someone like that. And, and it was just like, you'd stay there for an hour or so and suffer a certain amount of abuse and just say, fuck this, this is no fun. Mm -hmm. These are a bunch of hammerheads that don't know anything. And, and they're, you know, trying to get physical and this is no fun fuck it we're out um, yeah but I would say that the, the difference between those the, the the book that I worked on and like Please Kill Me or The Neutron Bomb or uh, Give Me Something Better in San Francisco is that uh, I asked the people to to use a longer form so you got a sense of, of their voice and also um, I could fact check it because there's not a lot of fact. If, if you call no. up, you know, you called up Didi Ramon and said, "Hey, Didi, remember this time that, and it was all fucked up?" And it's like, blah blah blah. He answers, and then there's not a whole lot of fact checking because, and that's great because it's just like this is the story. Yeah. Um, it also we, we got a bigger sense of the city of Los Angeles mm-hmm. at the time because that was a huge influence. The you know openness and the and the horizon and and the fact that people had cars and that's a kind of freedom and, and all that stuff. So I think to me like when you know as an outsider looking from a, a different point in time, it, punk really becomes that true all around art form when it gets to LA. Like that's when you know obviously there's people taking photographs and things like that, but you don't have the the same sort of like importance placed on on literature on on graphic arts that you do when it goes to LA and it just seems like there's like a, an aesthetic that's kind of being defined about what this this is. Uh, is that misreading? 
May I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that, but I don't. Th I think that that all those elements were in uh, in New York and and in London. You know, with people, uh, the kind of art that was made uh, for flyers and um, film. Uh, you know, film was really big in the, uh, especially in the second wave of, uh, of the you know no New York mm -hmm. bands mm -hmm. like uh, Lydia Lunch and and uh, DNA and. and uh, you know, Exine's sister was in a movie that I don't even know if it's if it still exists. Um, <clears throat> called Ecstatic Stigmatic, and that was made by uh, her husband at that point, uh, Gordon Stevenson. And Beth B was doing a bunch of stuff, and and uh, you know, there's a bunch of underground kind of filmmaking, yeah. and and uh, uh, maybe in L.A. there was more poster art, but uh, everybody, I, I think. In all the, what makes a scene is that there's a bunch of people and everybody's doing something, even if it's just being fabulous, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And and then there the the fashion element or icon in the in the scene. So, there's like there's definitely a canon of that L.A. punk band. There's a canon of all punk, obviously, but there's a canon sure. of those L.A. punk bands. Um, who do you think is kind of left out of that canon, or at least underappreciated? Uh, from that time, maybe a band like you know the Screamers never recorded in yeah. any sort of real way, but like, well, the Weirdos were another one who yeah. who never did a full record. Um, I think the Plugs are are sort of uh, uh, underappreciated. Um, the Alley Cats, although the Alley Cats were were a little bit more old fashioned, they're a little bit more just a rock band. But because they looked strange and and uh, then they and they were playing in the same clubs as us, <laughs> but. You know, some people waited too long, and the and the moment passed. And um, you know, the Germs were influential, but <laughs> in a lot of until they put that record out, they were a, a, a like influential, but kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody took Darby seriously because his public persona was was like a, a huge twelve-year-old. You know, grown man, twelve-year-old, um, and he. So, yeah. Uh, who's a, who else is underappreciated? Um, what about Black Randy? I kind of think that's. Oh, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. He was like a fucking hurricane <laughs> <laughs> or a tornado. Just not a hurricane, tornado. Much more surgical <laughs> and unpredictable. Uh, Hurricane is a little slower moving. Um, yeah, he was he was viciously funny, mm -hmm. and then you and he, he would make fun of other people, and then you'd realize, oh wait a minute, um, when I'm not around, he's making fun of me. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Maybe, uh, but yeah, he and 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 he, you know, I I loved playing in the Metro Squad. I was on a couple of those records. Oh, yeah. and it was it was awesome. He was he was a complete psychopath <laughs> he truly was I mean I could he wasn't dangerous all the time but some of the time for sure he was um, but that was part of it in the seeking the edge you know getting seeking the other side and um, and I think that's a good thing you know you have to be careful because um, and that's obvious because there's a lot of dead punk rockers um, either at the time or, or later through uh, just wearing your body out um, 
or not having a strong constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was about seeing the other side and uh, reporting, reportage from the from the war zone. What were those recording sessions like for like that and the random single? Because is that your first time in a recording studio when you get out to LA? Mm, yeah, I'd done recording in people's houses, but and to call them recording studios is unfair because there was two <laughs> hotel rooms. <laughs> yeah, true. There was one hotel room where the where the um, eight track console in quotes was, and then the other <laughs> hotel room where the where the musicians were. It was a it was a joke. I mean. We did it to the best of our ability, but it was, you know, we did like it took seemed to take forever to to get going, mm-hmm. and then it was over in a minute or two and a half minutes, and then um, you do another one. I mean, we did the randoms and Black Randy all in one day. Wow! Sure. I mean, it's not wow, really, because it's. I mean, it's pretty shitty recording. Well, it's kind of dumb songs, and and um, I think it's only because it has this immediacy, and it's kind of um, a, there's a lot of heart in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it worth recording or li- worth listening to? But is it worth paying three hundred dollars for on eBay? Oh that, God, no. <laughs> oh God, no. I mean, unless you're, you know, I mean, I, I suppose. If you collect something, then you collect something, yeah. and and then you know it's like what anybody is willing to pay. I mean, you know, is a is a '60s Ferrari worth a million dollars? I know, but it is to somebody who's got fifty million. I take all thousand random singles. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I could talk to you forever, John, and I know you got to run, yeah. but uh, I would love to eventually do a part two with you one day okay. in the future. But I kind of wanted to just like leave that. Does it ever surprise you, given how ramshackle those recording sessions are, that how vital that music still sounds today? Or, or do you ever go back and listen to any of those singles or any of that stuff? I don't. I don't listen to them. Uh, I probably should, just to remind myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what it was like. I, I did a little bit. You know when when I was working on the book. Um, does it surprise me? It's it's flabbergasting. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's mortifying and shocking and and uh, but but it, it gives you a sense of uh, accomplishment and it gives you a, a little sense of um, of being you know validated. But you have to be careful with that because you don't want to kind of puff yourself up and and you want to realize that no. You were a dumb kid that just wanted to do something, mm-hmm. and so you and so you were a dumb kid, but you did something, and so it's worth at least that much. It's worth the, the fact that you tried and you did, rather than listen to conventional wisdom and and somebody saying because that's why I left Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Everybody would say, "Oh, you can't do that," you know, because the East Coast is is much more cynical. Than the than the West Coast. The West Coast is like, fuck yeah, let's give it a shot. You know, <laughs> I agree. And and the and the East Coast is uh, is more winter hardened. Yeah, closed down. And 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 you know, who do you think you are? You're from fucking Baltimore. And it's like, uh, okay. But then if you take yourself out of Baltimore, then it's like, oh, you're from Baltimore. What the hell happens there? And then all kinds of shit happened in Baltimore because. Nobody gave a shit, mm-hmm. and everybody did art just for art's sake. You know, 
visual and, and musical and you know now there's a lot of good stuff coming out of Baltimore mm -hmm. um, because it got left alone for a long time but uh, you know I'm, I'm proud of, of all the stuff but you you gotta temper it with uh, like don't get you know too big for your britches but history proved you right you know like all those people that were detracting from you you were right because here we are all these years later talking about these singles that two incredible <laughs> singles recorded in one day uh, that have changed countless people's lives and influenced so much music uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> you know I, you know the thing is, is that, that I'm I, I'm proud of being a journeyman uh, musician yeah I'm proud that I'm still here and I'm still playing music and I'm making new music and people are still coming to see X. Yes. Um, if you were to measure it by like how much money you made or how many records you sold, then it still is, you know, influential, but not very, um, not a good business <laughs> model. You know? All right. You did okay. a chariot as a rat. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, Thanks yeah. so much, John. All right. Well, let's do this again sometime. Yes, absolutely. We certainly can. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And John, of course, uh, is doing his thing. Also, pick up his book, Under a Big Black Sun, a great book with a lot of different people contributing to it. So you get a real different perspective on the L.A. punk scene. It's not like some of these punk history books, which tend to have a bias from the author in the way they edit it together, especially oral history stuff sometimes. Not all of them. Not all of them. There's some great ones out there. But occasionally, in the past, there have been a couple books that have revealed a bias of the author. And I think John found a way around it with this one because everyone's just like writing these essays and you kind of get a real... I'm sure there's a bias in editing that could be present there too, but there's you get a real range of perspectives on the early early L.A. punk scene. So check out that book and check out, of course, you know, if you haven't checked out X, they've got a couple records you should listen to. And if you haven't uh, checked out the randoms or any of those early Danger House singles, they're essential, absolutely essential. And there's bootlegs and there's official reissues from years ago. And uh, I think there's even like more modernish reissues of the singles too. That that label is, is perfect. Perfect. Pick up those records. And uh, that's it. That's it for this week's show. I'm going to go do more stuff here in Japan before I head back to Canada. Uh, because when I get back to Canada, i got to put up next week's episode. And next week on the show, someone I got to meet and hang out with in Japan, a wrestler that I'm a huge fan of, Dave Christ. Um, one of the top wrestler guys on the indie scene right now. Uh, about to make a debut on TV. And also... Man, this goes deep. This is a heavy episode. This might be one of the most intense turned out of punks that I've had a chance to do. He, uh, he was someone that grew up part of um, a pretty, you know, and I think he didn't. He says it in this pretty violent scene in Ohio, and uh, managed to get out of a very rough situation, and has now found success and 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 some level of happiness in professional wrestling. So, yeah, it's a great episode. I really recommend you listen to it. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, and even if you're not a fan of uh, 90s hardcore, listen to this episode, because this, for just 
human survival is an incredible story. That is next week on the show. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. Do do what you do because there's going to be someone out there that also wants to see what you're doing. And that's it. Uh, stay safe. I love you, and I'll see you next week. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.